Welcome to Future Insiders, a podcast about the future of tech, business, and humanity. I am your host, Kathy Hackle. Today, I'm joined by Bronwyn Williams, futurist and partner at Flux Trends, and we'll have a discussion about the metaverse, about the economics of the metaverse, and even gold. So I'm excited to welcome my fellow futurist and friend, Brownin Williams, to the Future Insiders podcast today. Hi, Brownin. How are you? Great. Thanks. And yourself. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really excited to to have you here. So you and I have connected in, you know, on LinkedIn and in the social media space and um, and also on a book project that you're working on. And I'm sure we're going to get to that towards towards the, you know, later on in the podcast. Um, but I want I want folks to get to know a little bit more about who you are if they haven't if they haven't connected with you before. But maybe tell folks a little bit about who you are, what you do, um, and and we'll get into it. Yes, yeah, so I'm a futurist economist and trend analyst, and I'm a partner at a company called Flux Trends. We help mainly corporate institutions here in South Africa and the global south to make sense of current trends and what those trends are going to turn into in the future. So we consider ourselves to be the contemporary equivalent of the medieval watchmen who stood on the watchtower and sort of scanned the horizon for the marauding hordes. Mm-hmm. So our, our service offering really is that we buy our clients time time to take advantage of opportunities before the competition and time to react to threats. As we all know, living in 2020, what some of those threats might be, if you can just buy yourself a little bit of forewarning with a little bit of foresight, it can translate into the difference between success and failure in your business. So that's basically what I do. Yeah, I mean, and and I don't think there's ever been a time where strategic foresight and futures intelligence has been as important as today, uh, this day and age. 2020. I mean, I don't even know what else it can throw at us, and I don't want. I don't want to know actually, um, <laughs> but I think it's it's a lot happening. And you're you're obviously focused on uh, on the economic, on looking at the economics of things and the, impl- the implications in, in politics. What are some of the things that you're looking at right now that you're kind of keeping tabs on or exploring? I mean, it just seems like there's so much happening right now, but. What are some of the things that you're most interested in? Because I feel like as futurists, we we tend to have things that we're really interested in, but it also ebbs and flows, right? Yeah, exactly. So my training is in economics. I've got that's what my degree is, and that's what I've sort of been trained to think in. But I think the skills translate perfectly into the world of foresight because economics really boils down to incentives, <laughs> you know, that sort of choice architecture and nudging, and trade-offs which is basically all the different things that we need to look at as futurists to determine if this, then what. So that way of thinking, I think, is quite useful in whatever domains I look at. But I am interested in the world of money and markets, so I'm not ashamed to say that at all. And what we've definitely seen this year in particular is that what crises tend to do is accelerate trends that are already in play, number one. And number two, they bring the sort of ideas that have been lying around that perhaps haven't had time and space to come to fruition to actually get space to breathe and to grow. So what we've definitely seen in the economic space is the rise of all the acronyms that have suddenly just popped up into into common consensus, particularly UBI, that's Universal Basic Income, and MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. These two ideas are going to collide and are really going to change the way global economics is working. From a geopolitical perspective, this really indicates that the sort of power balances, because power and money are so 
intricately entwined are going to shift from perhaps we're going to move beyond the whole Dalhemajani sort of scenario towards a more democratized global economic monetary fiscal system. And then of course, there's the third acronym we can throw in there, which is the whole BTC, the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency space, which has also been given a huge boost. So if you've seen the way those sort of stock prices or token prices have increased over the last few months, you can see that these are big ideas that have been brewing for a very, very long time, but they've gone very suddenly from being fringe, sort of heterodox economic concepts to suddenly being mainstream and everywhere. And it's been quite astonishing to see how quickly those concepts have jumped in in a crisis. But we know this. I mean, this is what Milton Friedman has been saying for decades before this, you know. Crises are when ideas that have been lying around get a chance to breathe. And whether those ideas are the right sort of ideas or not are the sort of conversations that I like to have with policymakers and with business leaders to say that just because an idea is a new idea lying around doesn't necessarily mean it's the best idea because yeah. we're very good at diagnosing problems, but we also tend to get very wedded to our personal favorite solution, which can paint us into a bit of a corner because all of these ideas sound wonderful on paper, but they all have some, once again, unintended consequences and trade-offs because as much as we'd like to believe that we can get a free lunch, we can't really, or maybe we can get a free lunch, but that just means someone else is gonna have to pay for it. So I like to try and shape the conversations that I have to say, who's paying for the lunch and who's eating the lunch you know, as we go forward. And particularly as our economies are so global and so connected, you know, you know, if the US starts adopting policies like MMT, it has implications for countries that don't have monetary sovereignty in Africa, in the global south where I live. So mm -hmm. I like to look at that from that sort of perspective. That's what I'm thinking about. And I suppose the other thing that I'm quite interested in at the moment, more as a futurist now rather than an economist, is what's happening with the decoupling of the real and the virtual economies. And we can think about that in many different ways. So we can look at it just on the stock market and see how the sort of stocks that have increased in value belong to the virtualized, financialized, not real economy. And the businesses that operate in the real economy selling real goods and real services have really, really struggled. So you've seen this huge divide, not just between rich and poor, but between certain types of industries and other types of industries. And that's really just the first signal but the very heading towards is towards a world where we're actually going to start building sort of four dimensional virtual economies or metaverse economics, as you were talking about that. a bit earlier. I <laughs> collaborate on a Forbes article about the metaverse. Absolutely, I'd love to. <laughs> you hit me where, you know, where, where I like it. It's This is super interesting. Um, so I wrote a piece actually for Forbes saying, is direct to avatar the next direct to consumer? And it's somewhat aligned to what you're talking about is these virtual economies or these, you know, these companies that are, you know, doing their IPOs or their listings, and they are in some level, what they're offering is a virtual service of some sort, um, not a, you know, not a physical good. And, and, and it's definitely this transition that we're seeing. So, so I, I'd love to, you know, your opinion on, on virtual items, on the virtual economy, in the metaverse, you know, what are you seeing? What are you, what are you excited about? Well, I'm really excited about how we're starting to see what I'm call, I'm, I'm calling in the sort of talks and work that I do, fantasy economics emerging. So we've, we know about the virtual economy and the financialized economy, and that's a sort of precursor towards this fantasy economics. But this fantasy economics is when essentially you've got real value in virtual worlds. So of course, 
the cryptocurrencies and Bitcoins were what, where this really started because the virtual world is great at sort of democratizing access to information, but we had a problem then because when everything is infinitely replicable, it's got no real value. So we had to put scarcity back into the virtual world in order to create value in the virtual world. And I've just seen that industry completely explode much out of the crypto space and not to say it's not there. I mean, we're really seeing huge, huge, huge increases in things like NFTs, like non-fungible tokens and things like crypto voxels where you can purchase actual real estate. So unreal real estate in the metaverse, in these virtual platforms. And suddenly your tangible assets that had you know, we could say things like like real estate was supposed to be an asset they weren't making more of, but suddenly now we are making more of it in a virtual space and, and it has real value. And because it has real value, it becomes a tradable asset, but it also becomes a sort of fourth space for people to build careers and build businesses. And there's really space for everyone there. What makes it even more interesting is that this sort of virtual economy that lives in the metaverse has its own virtual currency, its own virtual assets, its own tradable goods and services, its own art that you can buy and sell and trade, its own architecture that you can purchase, its own land that you can purchase. And this is all done in a separate space that means that it is not constrained by issues like sustainability on the earth. So it makes it very exciting for me. So I think that you know when you talk about economics and politics, people tend to get very, very depressed and have very bleak views about the future. And I think that that's incredibly unexciting. How can you get a five-year-old or a 15-year-old excited about a future that's going to be smaller than what their parents had? No, no, you've got to do with less because we've overshot our natural resource boundaries. And for me, the virtual metaverse economy is really the only place where we can have sustainable growth because yeah. we can build layers and layers worlds upon worlds without necessarily destroying the real world that we have to live in so we're almost able to separate our basic needs much more than we currently already seeing on the sort of stock market differential but in a much more distributed potentially democratic equitable way because there really is space for everyone because there's so many layers we can build it's not just one metaverse we could have many layers and, and that sort of tunnel or rabbit hole and that's very very exciting when you start thinking about the sort of limits to limits to growth which is which is very interesting for me and to your point i mean i'm the mom of three kids um like my kids now my, my son just had his first communion which you know and for you know for catholics it's a big deal and he, when people ask him what do you want as a gift he actually asked for roblox gift cards so he could uh, create that into robux which is the digital currency that work that you can use inside roblox and when you ask him about Roblox, they say to me initially, I was like, oh, it's a video game. I said, no, mom, it's a community. And that hit really, that was really interesting because I said, okay, there's this whole thing. They, you know, with them, you know, that's where they want to spend their money, which I found really interesting instead of a physical good. And then talking to a friend of mine, his daughter is making hundreds of Robux, so the currency within Roblox designing uh skins and designing digital clothing within within that so i love what you said about talk how how do we get children excited about the you know economics and learning about you know managing um you know money and etc etc and, and you hit the nail on the head i mean it's so true instead of thinking of this depressing idea of like oh you know depleted depleted resources and stuff maybe focusing on those those more positive aspects could be really interesting
is something I'm quite passionate about. I think that when we talk, think and hear what our leaders are really saying to our children, they're saying, we've ruined the world, so you're going to have to make do with less. And that is hugely depressing, especially if you're a young person that's going to start work or trying to make a way in a world that's just come out of the crisis we're currently in now. And now you're saying, this is as good as it gets. You've got to make do with that. And that really feeds into this whole concept that William Gibson came up with, the whole concept of postalgia, which is sort of like stuck in the infinite present, hankering after now rather than nostalgia for the past, saying, this is as good as it gets. It's sort of the end of history before your life has even began. How can you get people excited about investing in the long now, investing in long-term projects that are going to make it better for at least the next generation after them? You cannot if you're telling people that they're going to have to have smaller shrunk horizons. So we have to come up with solutions as futurists, as leaders, as parents, as teachers, to broaden those horizons and to prove to young people that the future can be better than it is now. And that in fact, human history has done very well with that. Throughout all of our crises, as much as you know, the arc of human history is a bit of a spiral where we go through ups and downs, overall that arc of history has been upwards. And I think we have to still have faith that we can have real progress. And real progress is literally the definition, is doing more with less. And that's what we should be using the tools that we have to do. So I think that we really do need to get people excited about the future again. And there's no reason why we have to only sell pessimistic views of the future. We're not going to get people to buy into building in a future that's going to be worse than it is today. So I had an interesting question related to South Africa that, um, that maybe you can kind of help clarify, because one of the signals that I've been tracking that for some reason keeps popping up and I keep seeing everywhere is the idea, the gold, the gold, the economy, the economy and gold and people buying gold or selling gold or like just I'm trying to better understand. And I know that there's gold mines in South Africa that, you know, were obviously very important in one time and still very important. But now some of them are uh, the majority, I think, are um, are black owned. And, and there's this whole thing happening. What are some of the things that you're seeing there? Because you track this more closely than I do. Is there something there or is there is this just something that I'm, I'm totally off on? Our gold industry is quite aged at the moment. So our gold is very deep in the ground. So it's getting very, very expensive to get out. So it's not actually a very competitive gold industry at the moment. And it is very, very dependent on the gold price. So it's one of those things that's sort of a hedge against our terrible currency, which has been impacted not just by COVID, but also by our particular cast of characters in charge of our politics. And as uh, someone that lives on the American side, you also understand the sort of challenges with politicians. <laughs> but also managed, <laughs> also managed to get us into junk status the same week we went into lockdown for COVID. So that doesn't do great things for your currency, but it does do great things for export products, things like gold. So those prices in relative terms do you know increase compared to your domestic currency. So it is seen as a hedge against the RAND, or that's our currency. It's also seen as a hedge against the stock market, but gold has always been a hedging instrument. Very similar to what Bitcoin is trying to become going forward. You know, there's been a lot of analogies towards Bitcoin being digital gold. I'm not sure it's quite the same thing. I have serious questions around digital currency in general because I don't see how you can separate currency from reality because most of our currency is actually designed to support our tax system, which in turn is designed to support our welfare system. And there's not many people that be prepared to trade their entitlements for privacy and freedom of speech. So I think there's a sort of a, there's a disclaimer there to say that I don't believe that Bitcoin is exactly parallel to gold, 
but it appeals to the same sort of person who's looking for a way to opt out of a system that they don't believe is headed in the right direction. They believe is headed for a bubble or for a collapse, as we should all be concerned about with the general money printing going on at the same time as we have very fragile real economies. So you can understand why people are looking towards those assets at the moment. Gold has also got some interesting sort of future implications because gold has always had its held its value due to its scarcity. And because it's expensive to get out of the ground and there's only so much we can produce every year, it has a kind of built in very low inflation rate, you know, very similar to what the whole Bitcoin idea is to have this sort of controlled supply that can't be manipulated by money printing by central bankers or by governments. So it's supposed to hold its value. This of course falls apart once Elon Musk and his ilk manage to start doing space mining because suddenly those economics all get thrown out of the window. Yeah. That's not to say it's going to happen in our lifetime, but it does put a question mark onto this asset that's always been something for us as humans to fall back on when our politicians and our bankers have let us down. Are we going to be able to fall back on these systems when suddenly the whole supply-demand equation has been thrown out because you've got this virtually limitless supply that's available to us. Yes, it will be expensive and it will be sort of mined very slowly and brought back very slowly, but it does throw up a question about how there really is no stable money in the world. And money is very much a social construct. It comes down to what you and I believe in. Everything that we trade in only has value because we believe it has value. And that's why this whole idea of sort of social cohesion and social trust are so important because our monetary systems are very much a faith-based system. You know, we have to have faith in them for order for them to work. And once we lose faith, things collapse very, very quickly. And our neighboring country, Zimbabwe, as everyone knows, is, is exactly that. It's a failed monetary system because people have lost faith in the monetary system and the government that backs it. So you've got to be very, very careful about these things, but I think we can't be too pessimistic either. We tend to make a plan as human beings, but it's very interesting to see how you've got these different potential forms of money that can form the basis of trust and security and value going forward whether that's virtual money and virtual currencies or very hard physical money like gold itself or the sort of weird things in between like central bank backed fiat money or now the sort of digital fiat that's coming on board which is just complicating things even more because that opens up the, the whole different futurist can of worms about surveillance money and incursions onto things like freedom of movement and freedom of speech when all of your transactions are trapped and there's no way to opt out of the system. So anyway, the sort of monetary systems we use and we decide to back and we decide to believe in say a lot about our societies. Oof. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about the book because that's how, how you and I connected, um, kind of, I knew we were connected on social, but it was through the book and through, through the work you're doing with that. Tell folks a little bit about um, when the book is coming out, maybe maybe an update. I'm not sure what you can share. So, yeah, sure. So Theo Priestley, he's a futurist based in Edinburgh, and myself have edited together a book we're calling "The Future Starts Now." So we've got contributions from 20 different futurists from all over the world, yourself being one of them. We've got very interesting characters. We've tried to collect what we've called a bunch of anti-futurists. So not your sort of Singularity University mainstream pop futurists and not necessarily just your academic, pure academic futurists either, but rather people that have a particular unique view on the world, 
most of us that are featured in the book are what we call sort of independent features. We're not like tied to a particular organization. So we have a bit of freedom and independence of thought, which we thought was interesting take on where the future is going. And each of the essays we put together cover a different issue that we think that the general public perhaps hasn't had an opportunity to think deeply about, either because the sort of conversations we're starting haven't been had in the open media space, or because they might just be a little bit of an uncomfortable sort of idea. So things like immortality, for example, and how you want to how you want to position your own value system around that. So you put together these tw these twenty odd essays each with a very different viewpoint on the future. And the idea is to use them as a conversation starter to get more people, ordinary people, everybody, young people, old people, professional people, retired people, students, whoever it is, getting conversations around the future. Because what we really do believe is that the future needs more voices, not less. There's nothing worse than a one-size-fits-all utopia or just a very few very big men or women with ideas about where the future is going. And we're quite concerned about that. If you sort of take a trip back in time to the 1920s, we had the World's Fair and we had all these marvelous ideas, many of which we haven't even managed to materialize in reality. I mean, we're still using the same subway systems we had back then. And you know, the trips to the so moon seem to dried up. The Concorde doesn't even fly anymore. So it's like we haven't even done a particularly good job of sort of materializing those ideas. But what's more concerning is that we haven't got any sort of ideas or vision for the next hundred years. I don't remember the last time I had a conversation with someone that has any sort of positive plan for 10 years in the future, let alone 100 years in the future. We've kind of lost that general white noise in society about being excited about the future. And I believe this is largely to do with the fact that future conversations have been largely eclipsed by things like the climate crisis and by issues of inequality, which are both for me quite near-term problems. They require immediate action right now and they're reality, so we have to deal with them. But that doesn't count as a plan as to where we are going. Solving current problems is not the same as imagining what we could be. So hopefully our book kind of gets in the sweet spot of that, both scaring and inspiring people, because we have to have that balance. It just gets That's more great. voices speaking. That's where the conversations, like you're saying, are, happen. And and the book is coming. The book is being published by Bloomsbury. Uh, published. And when when is it coming out? Because I can't remember the exact. Um, you know, it's I, coming out in April next year, April 2021. It's available for pre-order already if you look on Amazon and all the all the major booksellers. But it'll be out in in hardback in April next year. Awesome. Well, definitely, I'll definitely include it a link um, in the podcast description so folks can click on it and pre-order the book. And um, I wrote an. Uh, an essay in it about the metaverse and about virtual the virtual worlds, which is obviously kind of uh, where I spend most of my time, obviously. Um, so we're getting towards the end of our time together. So maybe share with folks something you're really excited about, um, you know, maybe something you saw, an article you read or a piece of technology that you're excited about with regards to the future and then where folks can find you. Okay, sure. So I'm gonna stick with my sort of general virtual fantasy economics sort of sphere of influence. And what I'm very excited about right now is this concept of personal shares. It comes out of the cryptoverse again, once again, but this is where people are essentially selling shares in themselves. And this changes the conversation around debt and credit 
rather fundamentally for both good and for bad but the concept is just hugely hugely exciting to me so the concept with this is that people would issue a non-fungible token in themselves you can buy a stake in me or in you and that means that you would share in the upside much like you would buying equity in a company through a stock but it also means that if you don't come good if you don't make money in your life if your business does not work out you don't really owe people anything else Whereas presently, if you want to start something, if you want to study, if you want to start a business, most of us are forced to take on debt, which we are forced to pay back whether or not we succeed. So this is a way for investors to share in the upside of somebody else's personal life and success journey. But at the same time, that person's being invested in is not obligated to pay that person if they don't, if they don't follow through. So the whole concept of thinking about personal credit versus personal debt or personal debt versus personal equity is a very, very interesting conversation because on the one hand, it empowers people to smooth their own consumption across their lifestyles or across their life cycles, which is great. On um, the more sort of negative or concerning side, it could also be seen as a sort of form of neo-serfdom. So you're kind of selling yourself because if you undercharge your investors for the investment in who you are, you could end up, you know, sharing more than you intended to if you become more successful than you are but it opens up a very interesting conversation about how much you're willing to bet on yourself if you believe you can do amazing things in the future perhaps taking on debt is better for you if you believe that what you've got right now is about as far as you're going to go selling equity in yourself makes a lot of sense but just having those options and those financial instruments that were formerly only allowed for businesses or for very large corporations being applicable to ordinary individual men and women is very, very interesting to me. Well, thank you so much for being on Future Insiders. How can folks get a, get in contact with you? Okay, so you can either find me, I'm generally on Twitter quite a lot. I'm at Bronwyn Williams. I was fairly early adopter there. Otherwise, you can find me at my company website. That's fluxtrends.com. All right, thank you for being on Future Insiders. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Future Insiders. I hope you'll join me for more interviews about the future. And don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend about the podcast.